Welcome to episode number 98 of the Bearded Marketers Podcast, the only internet marketing podcast that matters. I'm Rob. And I'm Corey. We bring you this podcast on the weekend of Marco's birthday. We celebrate by blowing stuff up. Yeah, so we're not recording on a Friday like we normally do. This is Mm -hmm. a Thursday for us, long weekend. For listeners out there, you'll probably be picking us up on Tuesday or Wednesday. But we drop new episodes every Monday morning, regardless of whether or not it's a holiday, at thebeardedmarketers.com slash podcast and on iTunes, Stitcher, and everywhere else where you can find podcasts. Take a second to rate us, review us on iTunes. Find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash thebeardedmktrs. They ran out of letters. It was too long. We're scared of our greatness. (laughs) So we have like a weird name on there. But we're getting a lot of cool feedback from people. If you will have some topics that you want us to cover on a future episode, drop us a line at thebeardedmarketers.com slash, I think it's contact. Anyway, all that crap's out of the way. What's our phone number? 904-270-9603. Hit us up, drop us a line, text us, leave a voicemail, whatever. Yeah. I won't answer, so you don't don't be worried about that. <laughs> For those of you nervous about talking on the leave phones. Leave us a funny story. Yeah, leave us a voicemail. Talk about your problems, your issues, yeah. and the internet Creepy people world. that came up to you, any of that kind of stuff. Uh, we'll play it back live on the podcast. No, we won't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll answer your questions or whatever else you have for us. All right, what are you doing, drink-wise, to get in the mood? to bring people the latest well because my beard is getting full and feeling very stately lately i went to glenfiddich 15 double neat might be shying on a triple level so we'll see how this podcast goes on as <laughs> we well, get been, into the topic i've been but. watching you this is at least trip number three to the bar well, that i've yeah. seen you do for it's the been day. a tough week <laughs> tough week how about yourself this is a weird concoction i mean we're just missing one key ingredient lime juice we, oh. we've been out for a while that was my bad well i think we're just gonna wait till we get to the new office okay. and just reload up on everything we'll just run skeleton crew over here but anyway i'm just doing a ginger beer and buffalo trace okay which okay. actually just fine just together all right what are we doing give us the rundown for today i'm excited about this episode we're gonna talk about what causes us marketers the most pain and maybe a conversation on how Rob and I could maybe give some reprieve there. We're going to talk about what drives people to shop at their favorite retailer. Maybe some inspirations you can take and implement on your end. We're going to talk about some changes at Yahoo. Very interesting. Why people share content. Again, maybe you'll take some nuggets away from this and how you'll implement it on your content strategies. And then we're going to parlay into how we going to make more monies. What are the salaries looking like as of late? What are some career choices we maybe need to uh, consider in this digital age if we want to Get that little money. Get that built up bank account, you know what I'm saying? And then it would not be an episode if we didn't check in with the people that we are sometimes held hostage to, Google and what they're doing, things you need to stay in the loop on, and actually a user submitted article talking about AdWords. Thank you, Wesley, but we'll get to that at the end. So let's go ahead and kick it off. What causes us marketers to stay up late at night, maybe cry a little bit? hit the bottle like we're doing here on this episode. You know, what are some of those stressors? Uh, This is an e-consultancy article. This is a survey where they talk to some of the people in digital marketing, ask them what are some of the more common challenges? And I wanted to talk about a few of these. We have worked through some of them, but also I think we could have some good conversations on them. So leading the charge, which this is probably no surprise to many of you, is marketing attribution. And if you're not really familiar with that term, what we're talking about there is understanding credit or where people should give credit to as it relates to 
conversions, leads, basically your marketing efforts. We might be doing direct mail. We might be doing some display ads. We might be doing some retargeting. We might be doing some other forms. Maybe it's video marketing and we're getting all these leads and maybe some people are touching a couple of these, but how do we know what's really driving the difference? Actually, we have an article explaining some of the different models. If you check out our site at convincify.com learning, there's an article that explains some different attribution modeling. And that's 48% of people struggle with that. Right under in second place is turning data into insights. And this is something that we've seen a lot of people struggle with. And I think you talked about this last week as well, is it's not good enough just to regurgitate reports. What are the actual insights that we can take away from this? How are you at being a storyteller, crafting, stitching this tapestry? I think you uh, remarked. I I, I did not say that. You said (laughs) But I do like the story angle. I'm always talking about stories. Well, and that's how people like relate to. I mean, I think we can sometimes be paralyzed or desensitized almost to just percentages and what that actually means. But understanding the actual takeaways and insights. But I would also say being able to prioritize data is a big struggle. And I actually don't see that on here, but that can maybe be lumped into that is I'm overwhelmed by this data. I can't actually generate insights because I can't make sense of what I should be paying attention to. A lot of that boils down to not understanding numbers and statistics enough. A lot of us come from a more creative background or that's why we got into marketing and not finance or econ because we wanted to be like Don Draper and come up with cool campaigns. And now I'm staring at Google Analytics for four hours of my day. Well, then I couldn't hack the econ classes. Well, exactly. (laughs) You had to actually go and pay attention. I couldn't do it. But uh, no, I I agree. I I think the other problem too is we depend on who they pulled for this information, which kind of level of marketer we're talking about here. Because for a lot of marketers, especially in a larger company, we have no say in choosing the metrics that they have to pay attention to, right? So that's not necessarily their problem because it's been assigned from a greater power Mm -hmm. above them, you know. Or they inherited a report or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Like we have to be looking at these three numbers. So everything you do has to be focused on that, even if those necessarily aren't the most important things, or you disagree with how <laughs> what the math is behind those or whatever right. it is. But oftentimes we don't have the, the choice to pick those things. So moving right along, right under that is turning. Now this is taking it to a step further. So not only getting the insights from the data, but turning those insights into actionable segments. So taking those little nuggets and now what do I actually do with those insights? How do I create those segments? But then how do I really act on them? Again, I think some of those problems are related. There can be a little bit of data overwhelming that could be going on there. But also, I think sometimes people turn insights into segments, but then are beholden to the platform. So we've created these segments. Now what? So I've, I've gone through this exercise, but how do I actually make all of this work mean something other than just another layer that I'm dicing my report on? Those three, so marketing attribution, turning data into insights, and turning insights into actual segments far and away are the biggest challenges for marketers. It drops off pretty significantly into other ones, which we won't really get into as much as gaining a single customer view. So understanding who is that shopper and getting into things like personalization, moving data between systems. But those become 
very much secondary and compared to those top three things that we talked about. So actionable takeaways from that data is understanding that you're not alone, potentially. These might be struggles that you share as well. And to understand that others are trying to tackle these as well. It's not that you aren't necessarily a big failure or anything like that, or that your company is unique in these struggles, but it is something that is difficult for some. But also if you can come up with good practices, modeling and things of that nature, as we'll get into later on, you are able to differentiate yourself in the marketplace. If you can dabble in understanding marketing attribution, what sort of models make sense for your company? Is it last in, or maybe it's an even weighting, or it's a completely custom algorithm based on the weight that you've seen on different testing? That really puts you in a different league and category in the segment and your career opportunities and the value that you bring to your company now skyrocketing. You're becoming that all-star. You're not just a grunt. You're really tackling some of the things that marketers are struggling to really find an answer for. So what we're going to be doing as well, I mentioned we have some articles on this, is trying to help these aspects because they are tough issues to tackle and hopefully we are aiding in that process. But let us know, what do you struggle with? Write in, tweet at us. What are some of the challenges that you have. Moving right along. So Rob, you're going to let us know what is it that people love about shopping at different places. So this is some survey data based around the question of how people shop at their favorite or with their favorite retailer. So think in your mind who that might be for you. Add some context to these answers that I give you in the different demographics. I think how some of this can be used is, you know, I'm going to give some different demographics based on salary and income, based on gender and also a little bit of information on age. So if your primary demographics for your website fall into one of these categories and you realize that people don't shop online or do a certain stage of the buying process on websites, useful information to know. So there's some interesting findings here. So I'm going to start with the overall respondents and go from there. So out of everyone, again, shopping at their favorite retailer, in physical stores, people most often choose to buy their products in physical stores instead of researching. So 78% of the people who responded buy products in physical stores. Uh, only 50% are researching products in physical stores. We got the internet for that now, right? Well, <laughs> Which, it's about that touch and feel. Well, to buy maybe, but to research. If I need the specs, the stats, mm -hmm. whatever it is I'm doing, I'm just doing that online. Which falls into this next one. So 81% of people are researching the products on websites. No pressure, no salesman breathing down my neck. Um, and virtually the same amount of people are buying on online websites. So 82% versus 78. So the huge difference there is people are doing a ton more research on websites mm -hmm. instead of in stores. That trend is only going to get worse and worse. But interesting enough, right now at least, for mobile apps, only 50% of people are you know doing research on mobile apps. And nobody is buying on mobile apps. 35%, at least with their favorite retailers. That doesn't seem to fall in line with the types of conversion rates I've seen on my websites. I know you've worked heavily in e-commerce. Does that seem to fall in line with that? We'll say mobile apps do struggle a little bit behind like desktop websites typically from what I've seen. I think that's a confluence of different things going on there, but that is a little bit low. And I think what's sort of missing from the survey too is what type of retailer are we talking about and yeah, what are the goods that it. they actually sell? And I think for the mobile aspect of research and why people don't necessarily do that on a mobile app might be their perception of answering that question. Well, mobile apps I typically use for gaming or for different things, and people might not necessarily associate that research aspect. Plus, it's also a very distracting way to do research. You got a lot of things calling for your attention, whether that is creeping in on my friends on Instagram or I got a text message coming through. So if you're really focused on research, it can be a difficult platform to 
stay focused there. But I do think that these numbers might be slightly influenced by what retail vertical we're talking about here. Also in these stats, 42%, the mobile app is not applicable to their favorite retailer. Uh, So that sort of points in that direction. The final category that they asked respondents about, which may blow everyone's mind, about a third research products in catalogs. I know Wikipedia what a catalog was. I wasn't, I couldn't remember. I think like Sears or JCPenney or something. Uh, Well, I mean, J. Crew sends me stuff, but it goes right into the recycle bin. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could count those as catalogs. Mm -hmm. So maybe I do that. Okay. Yeah. Got to get them like I full guess. outfit pictures. Yeah. How am I going to put this together? That's that's a good point. Okay. And then 28% are fucking buying products out of a catalog. Uh, how does that even work? <laughs> Do you like tear a sheet out and fill it out and mail it in? <laughs> Obviously enough, 52% not applicable catalogs were not applicable for their favorite retailer. So those are some very basic generalized overall stats. There's not a ton we can do with their interesting stats though on catalogs blowing sure. my mind again. But from here on out, I'm going to talk about some of the, the larger differences between some of the different demographic information that they have here. So, for example, and this reminds me of, I feel like we've talked about some of these topics in past episodes, and I think I actually covered it, so this this feels familiar, but Mm -hmm. this stuff is always changing. So when you compare men versus women, again, at their favorite retailers, men research less in stores than women do by a significant enough difference. So women are going to the stores. I mean, so I, I mean, you, you think of an example. Yeah, I don't want to sound like an asshole by mm-hmm. profiling, but you see like clothes shopping being a huge difference sure, yeah, there, yeah. right? I mean, men could probably just buy everything online. I do. Much more like utility-based stuff. Right, exactly. So that mm-hmm. may account for a large part of that difference there. Uh, in terms of buying things, though, between men and women in stores, it's the same. Well, I think also just, and again, this is probably a generalization, but women tend to be much more social than men. So mm-hmm. having that distant shopping experience of doing it online, not having to interact with other humans. Sometimes that's, I would say, on average, more appealing to men than women. They like getting out and interacting with people. That's why we love them so much. Uh, whereas men are sometimes like, grr, just get away from me. <laughs> you know, I just want to be left alone. So I think that sex traits there that are kind of fluxing that data for sure. But also like we talked about the type of goods that they might buy might be a little bit different. A lot of the other uh, stats for men versus women were fairly similar. The the other standout category was with catalogs. So uh, women really substantially 50% more than men research things in catalogs. Marginally more women buy things through, buy products through catalogs. Everything else, though, stats-wise, were about the same through gender. So more women researching things in stores, more women researching things in catalogs. Buying, those seems to be fairly... Well, it's interesting to me, out of this data set, so they broke it also down into age categories. So one of them was 18 to 34-year-olds, which you, you would typically bucket into the internet generation or the younger whippersnapper, so to say. But what was interesting in that data set is... Comparing it to all respondents, actually pretty high catalog usage. So even us young people are still interacting with catalogs. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're buying from them because that's still pretty low. But 41% are still researching from these catalogs. So even some of the more dated tactics that we might say are still being used by this energy. And I think that it, it does behoove us as marketers to understand that there are still some different viable channels for us to get our products products across and how people digest some of this information, even though we might write it off as that's something that old people do or things of that nature. Zeta was pretty fascinating, definitely worth a check out. Yeah, a couple other minor things I wanted to talk about. So they they separated out middle income, in which they're qualifying as 50 to 75K. And the other category was affluent, uh, more than 100K. 
And Which so, people in San Francisco might laugh at. <laughs> right. Which well, are you gonna, homeless. I'm actually going <laughs> to mention in the marketing salaries <laughs> section. But in terms of researching, there was a significant difference between mobile apps, more affluent people using mobile apps to research products, and more affluent people using catalogs to research products than middle income people. And then finally, you know, you, you already mentioned one of those things in the 18 to 34 year old category. Another thing is that obviously, and this makes sense, mobile app usage, both in researching and buying is hugely increased in the 18 to 34 year old demographic, mm -hmm. which makes sense. Some data, some of it obvious, some of it not so obvious. Yeah, definitely check it out. Sometimes that's, it's that's hard to hear on the podcast. So as always, we'll tweet out the link for you to check out on your own time. All right. One thing that I wanted to bring up this week, because I thought it was hilarious is so Yahoo has kind of been in this weird spot where they're sought after and seen as a pretty big news source, but as a search engine, it's sort of fallen off and it's they've never really gained a ton of ground on Google, even as some of these privacy things have come out and, and opportunities for it to potentially rise and grab some market share have presented itself just never really never really made that much traction. And so what's been interesting is they've been testing some very radical changes to their platform in the way that they're serving results. And one thing that's been very interesting is they've actually been testing augmenting some of their search results using Google's algorithm. So Yahoo is now also exploring using Google to power some of its search, uh, which is interesting. I think that they're obviously not at this point bringing in some of the AdWords uh, aspect, which is probably what a lot of us marketers are paying attention to. But from an SEO standpoint, that has interesting implications. But also from the Google side, I'd be a, a tad concerned you know, at Google's level, the market share they have and the dominance. There are always conversations that are flirting antitrust. And as people like Yahoo or, or other large sites potentially start bringing on Google services to power their search, I think that Google has to be a bit concerned at how much reach that they're having and the more credence that's put into potentially some of these antitrust lawsuits. So it's interesting to see how that whole industry might be playing out, but very fascinating to see that Yahoo's actually testing using Google's algorithm and are turning some of their results in their own. Also wanted to chat a little bit about this We Are Social article that I stumbled across this week. And it talked about an article and research that the New York Times conducted. And it's actually a very fascinating case study in looking at the psychology of sharing and why people share online. They interviewed and talked to quite a few people that they would say is quote unquote heavy online share. So these are probably the aunts and uncles that you hate getting emails from. These are usually the Snopes articles, the conspiracy theories, just sharing everything. You know, the people that click on those article links at the bottom of content where you think, who clicks on that stuff? That's your aunt and uncle. They talked about what are some of the formulas of what causes people to share. And I, and I can't remember the podcast episode number, but you had a very fascinating talk in one of our episodes where you talked about some research that BuzzFeed did on mm -hmm. headlines that yeah. increase sharing. So that's that might be worth going whoo, dusting off the archives and maybe looking through some old episodes. But in the analysis really quickly, and we're going to tweet out a link to the actual study so you can look at it. There are five main reasons that they were able to distill why we share content with others. And some of the top reasons was to bring valuable and entertaining content to others. 
pretty self-explanatory to define ourselves to others. This is, you know, the content or articles that help define me or articulate what my beliefs might be to grow and to nourish our relationships. So maybe that's those self-help articles that you're sending the husband. Hey, maybe you need to check this out because, uh, I think you should implement this so we can have a better relationship. Self-fulfillment, sharing articles based on things that you're involved with and bragging maybe a little bit about yourself. Look at the organization I'm involved with and all the good that they do. Uh, We all like to be heroes. Can't deny that. But also five, to get the word out about causes and brands. So to be that broadcast mechanism. What was also interesting and they found in their research, which sort of goes against sometimes what we expect or what sticks out more in our mind, is more often than not, they found that the heavily shared content was actually positive in nature. So they found that people oftentimes had a greater propensity to share content if it actually had a positive spin. Now, I think that that might be different depending on your demographics or uh, the audience that you're talking to. As a perfect example, I think if you are pulling the Fox News crowd, that might be significantly different than if you are looking at a BuzzFeed crowd. So certainly there is some audience intelligence that needs to go into this, but it's fascinating to say that draws some interesting conclusions that might go against what you might assume and could lead you to understand and tweak maybe your content strategy and how you're going to approach 2015 and how you might want to craft your articles to get better shares. Would you say attention whoring would fall under self-fulfillment? Just uh, the absolutely. people who just po- post crap out there. Yeah, yeah. Just to, well, they want to be heard. Yeah. So they're going to post a lot of stuff out there to get that like recognition, to get people to acknowledge that they exist and, you know, kind of give them some self-esteem boost that, you know, I matter to my tribe. So I certainly think that that self-fulfillment, especially as I do feel like as society has gone on and we've, we now work in very sometimes isolated uh, places, you know, a lot of us work in cube farms or we're a lot busier. So the social aspect of our life has become more difficult to manage or make time for, you know, sharing stuff online has, sometimes replace those social interactions. So there are a lot of feelers that people put out there because they don't feel those social reinforcements as frequently on a day-to-day basis due to how the workforce and just culture has changed, particularly here in the U.S. and what people's daily work looks like on a day-to-day basis. I think this is like, uh, I don't want to say groundbreaking because I'm sure it's been covered out there, but Mm -hmm. it's definitely flipped a switch for me. I mean, especially the angle he takes when he talks about, you know, rather than focusing on creating good content just in hoping it gets shared, really trying to play up to one of these angles. I mean, I think that that's huge. Paying attention to why people may want to share your content instead of just always assuming it's coming from that same place of we as marketers, at least I do when you create content that you hope that gets shared, you just kind of create good content and you hope that because it's good, people want to share it with other people, right. right? I feel like it's quality, so why wouldn't people share it? But I think this angle makes so much more sense in, in trying to appeal to one or multiples of these real true reasons that get mm-hmm. at you know, people's emotions and why why they want to get you know validation from other people or fulfillment or whatever it is makes a ton of sense. I think that's a great point. I mean, it's not a huge article, but great point. Let's move right along. So you're going to tell us how can we become ballas and get them high salaries? So what are some of the trends that we're seeing in the digital frontier on how my direct deposit can go up a little bit? Or what should I need to shoot for? Who are the big winners? And maybe some of the people that are struggling to see those similar gains? 
Yeah. So this is a report I actually picked off of Marketing Sherpa, but they're using data from this other company called Mondo, I think who does job placement. So they've gathered all of their recent data for the last year and compared it to previous years for a bunch of different positions in digital marketing. So I think this is valid because oftentimes in digital marketing, especially because this uh, field is so young, there's huge opportunity to sort of flip flop and jump across to, you know, a few different types of departments, Mm -hmm. you know, being able to jump over from the SEO group over to the SEM group or Mm -hmm. to the digital display group or whatever it is. I mean, there's tons of opportunity for that because so many people, you know, kind of like us have this experience in all of these different fields. Let's talk about some numbers here and some titles. I guess the good, I think this is actually bad news. Uh, Overall, (laughs) among digital marketers, there's a 3% increase in salaries from last year, which is simply keeping up with a national average, Um, which in my mind is, I mean, this is such a huge and growing industry. I feel like it should be stronger than that. Let's look at a few specific examples. Far and away, creative services directors are the most in demand with an 8% increase in salaries. Yeah, it's a pretty big jump compared Um, to everything else. Now, keep in mind for the director and officer type titles that I'm going to be talking about here, those bands often get very wide. It's going to hugely depend on how old the person is, how much experience they have. Well, and what a, I do feel like that we work with some companies where titles is a big thing. Mm -hmm. So what a director is with some companies is vastly different than being a director at a different company as well. So that might be why we see those gulfs as well. Yeah, creative services director, the range is from about 180 to what looks like about 80. The flip side of this graph, which is chief digital officer, is the range is from 300 to about 160, and the increase is about 6% for that title. So those are the two huge movers that have the most potential to make a huge salary. Some of the other ones in between, notable... I think those might also suffer from lower sample size. I don't hear chief digital officer or creative services as much. I mean, I've heard of them before. So maybe it's also kind of a a symptom of lower amount of people they were able to pull and that that means those bands are so wide as well. Yeah, I mean, potentially. There's another title in here that I think seems similar to those digital content strategies. It's kind of a weird... Oh, so I mean, you mean like you're head like, of blogging? Are you like a blog post writer? <laughs> yeah. That's up 5%, though. Mm-hmm. And the range for that one is, again, I'm ballparking these numbers by looking at a chart here, but it's about 80 to 130, something like that. Mm-hmm. SEO, SEM specialist up 5%, which kind of blows my mind because I feel like that's been around for a very long right, time. Right. That's kind of a stalwart in the industry. Yeah. That's decades old stuff there, but not getting paid much. Social is quite a bit about farther 100. down than them as well, though. That's kind of the least valued out yeah. of the group. Social media marketing manager, long title, uh, <laughs> hard to read on a weird graph sideways, <laughs> from about 60 to 100. I bet you that's just because there's, I think there's, with that position, there's a tendency to hire interns or assistants. Well, and there's like a ceiling for growth. To do like, that. where do you go from there? And, you know, some of these others have, I think, a better stairway for the career, where social be a bit limiting. And I think for some of the people that might be listening that may be in that position, certainly that we're not belittling the that position or the value that it brings to the table. But it does seem to indicate that you do have a ceiling on what you can make and and maybe what your career options are. So it's good to get your foot in the door, get a a wide range of understanding how social touches different marketing, but 
ultimately that shouldn't be, you know, your goal for a high growth opportunity. Well, I think that's like virtually all of the things on here. So it's the doers who don't get paid. It's the managers who get paid, right? So it's Mm -hmm. the same thing with social media marketing manager, which is basically a doer title. You're managing the social media accounts. I mean, the ladder from there is go up to, and I'm guessing into a customer service type department, which may be where that lives or under a marketing department Mm -hmm. and just going up the normal ladder there. Chief marketing officer, though, is an interesting one just to stand out on here. Kind of not really focused on digital. So interesting that it's on this chart, but 0% growth. Actually, at least according to this chart, makes less than a chief digital officer. The range there is from about 230 to about 140, something like that. Yeah, what's interesting here is it seems like a pretty stable and high-valued position as people getting into mobile app development, if you have some UI, UX development skills. And then also there are some mentions of data analysis. So if you're able to crunch big data sets, develop algorithms, or be able to, as we talked talked about before, taking those data sets and turning them into insights, that seems to have some high growth opportunity and ones that are pretty valued. I mean, you're seeing much better growth and ability to push salaries up much more so than compared to SEO, SEM, or even uh, in social and things like that. So maybe an interesting thing to play around with, diversify your skill set, make sure you get paid so we can have that yacht and the Caymans that we all think that we deserve so we can be in a music video. Let's pivot to our favorite part of the show, other than talking about what we're drinking, which is the Google Corner. Check in with Google to see what they're doing, what you need to be paying attention to. We'll keep it brief this week as we're running a little bit long, but we got into the topics. The first thing I wanted to mention is we have run into a couple people that have been burned by Google. Maybe they took some uh, questionable tactics in growing some of their links or different things that they're doing on their website with content. You received a penalty. SEO traffic has taken a huge dip. There's been a recent example where the fairly large site Thumbtack, which is a job posting board, and they do a bunch of other things, got a big penalty from Google where they had questionable link growing practices. And so Google actually penalized their site quite a bit. And it's a huge site. But what a lot of people were complaining about is they rectified the issue, I think, within a week, which is certainly a fast turnaround if you are familiar enough with the industry and how Google works with returning you into the results. So there were a lot of people complaining, particularly that Google is actually invested into Thumbtack as part of their VC arm. So a lot of people were complaining, how did they get this turned around? Well, and there's actually a good search engine land article and video that Google put out that documented, if you do get a penalty from us, here are the steps that you need to take to fast track rectifying the issue. And and really what it revolved around was putting together a good rebuttal and solution-based document on the steps that you take. Make it very clear exactly that you saw what you did. Here are the steps that we took to rectify it. And they said a lot of times what holds up the process is people just sending them over angry letters, but not really documenting the steps and showing them proof of the different tactics that they're taking to mitigate against that and change course. So it's an interesting article, particularly if you are in that situation, but it's also just good reading to know in the back of your mind because it can be a very stressful and huge situation to deal with. So having that background knowledge uh, can really make you be that all-star in the company. The last thing I was going to cover is an article that was sent in to us by Wesley, and it's a WordStream article that talks about seven ways to ruin your AdWords campaigns. So I'm going to go through these real quick and probably highlight just the big ones. Uh, The first one that is shocking to me uh, that a lot of people don't do is 
to not use keywords in your ad copy and have that congruence of what people are actually searching for being contained within your ad. They're expressing a search intent to you, so it only makes sense that your ads also reflect that. I will say there is a slight caveat to that and being aware, and this is gonna be a running theme in a lot of these, of what your competitors are doing. So it's not good enough just to have keywords in your ad copy, but make sure it's differentiated enough to where yours don't just mimic theirs. Maybe all your competitors use keyword insertion at the beginning of their ads. Well, now all yours look the same. So not only is it good enough to point out that intent, but make sure that you also are different from your competitors. Number two, a lot of people shockingly still don't use this, is using negative keywords in your settings. So this takes an awareness of looking at your stats, looking at what searches don't make a difference for you, what also cost you a lot of money and make sure you tell Google, hey, I don't want to rank for those. It can save you a lot of monies and a lot of heartache. I see a lot of people doing these as well as sending high traffic PPC terms to generalized pages such as home pages. Oftentimes those experiences are not optimized for how PPC traffic works. It doesn't actually connect in with the ad. It's just this general place that you're dumping people and hoping that they're successful. And you need to spend a little bit more time with your PPC traffic because in that instance, particularly if it's a high traffic term, you know exactly or in really good detail what those people might be looking for. And it makes sense because you're spending so much money to potentially essentially create a more custom landing page and an onboarding experience coming from Google and making sure that you retain those people. Because keep in mind, they came to you from a search engine. And so if that experience isn't what they're expecting or meaningful or connects to what they're looking for, you're just a back button away from just spending a couple of dollars on traffic that they didn't really find what they're looking for. And they know exactly where your competitors are because they just came from that page. Uh, so that makes sense that you need to really cater that experience, particularly on the, on the terms that are costing you a lot or getting a lot of traffic. Also, surprisingly, not a lot of people testing PPC. You know, they come up with an ad, they think it's golden, and they just don't ever test or think that the consumers will always hold up to that. It's always shocking to me that people might do some initial testing, find a great ad, and then they'll run it months and years. Well, people change, industries change, so you should always be testing, but make sure if you are testing, you let it sit in for a little bit. I think a lot of people rush to decisions. They'll pay attention to their AdWords. They'll check it multiple times a day. And after maybe one or two clicks, they'll go ahead and just make a snap judgment. So we are always advocates of testing, but just make sure you got enough samples. So I think that's enough tips. We can get into more detail. Let us know, are you interested in some PPC tips? Rob and I have done that for quite a few years, but let us know if you have some more questions. That's gonna do it for us in this episode. And we cover the gamut. I get paid more, some SEO, some PPC, see people still using catalogs crazy anyways hope you enjoyed your time today if you enjoyed yourself we ask a couple things one you'd share with a friend a colleague or as rob like to say a lover perhaps rate us on whatever channel you found us on maybe it's stitcher itunes whatever it might be it helps us grow the show but know where we stand and maybe things that we need to tweak as well. Also, if you have an idea for the show, you can give us a call at 904-270-9603. Leave us a voicemail, or you can reach out to us on Twitter where we'll tweet out all the links that were on the show or on the beardmarketers.com slash contact, where we also have some great content. That is going to do it for us again. Thank you so much for your time, and we'll see you next week. Gia. Yeah.
Thank you.